Coming up, we hear from artist Leslie Ewy on her formation as an artist and her broader thoughts on the intersection of art and the church, right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. We hope this episode finds you well and that spring is in full bloom if you're at a place where you're in spring right now. Here at Upper House, we're in the midst of a new type of program for us, a month-long art exhibit titled Unveiled, Prayers of the People. First of all, if you're in traveling distance to Madison, uh, we'd encourage you to consider signing up to visit the exhibit in the last couple of days. It's closing on May 6th. A link for registration is in the show notes. But even for those who can't visit the exhibit, we want to spend this episode exploring the intersection of faith and art prompted by the unveiled exhibit, and especially thinking about the artists in our midst. To help us do that today is my colleague, Melissa Shackelford, rejoining the podcast. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Dan. So the conversation we're about to hear is with an artist that, Melissa, you've worked with a couple times, Leslie EY. Tell us a bit about Leslie. Yeah, I got to know Leslie through working with her on a piece called Hold Fast, which she reinstalled here at Upper House for a program back in November of 2019. She's an installation artist who has a background in mathematics, chemistry, and architecture. So you can imagine that she loves bringing together different connections from all of these fields into her artwork. And I just love the way she thinks. That's awesome. You mentioned she's an installation artist or she does installation art. Tell us a bit about the uniqueness of that particular type of art and why you've been drawn to bringing this type to Upper House. Yes. So Leslie is going to unpack this in full in the podcast, but basically installation art is art that you experience, not just look at. You can live inside it and participate with it. And so Leslie mostly works in indoor spaces that use the room basically as a guiding structure for what she's creating. Her work is also also really conceptual. So she's inviting you in to participate in an idea and to explore it through this participatory art form. Yeah, and hopefully the listeners can uh, sort of connect the dots on why Upper House would be a great place for an installation artist and an art exhibit uh, to exist. So Leslie's one of the artists at our current Unveiled exhibit can you tell us just a bit about the the whole sort of unveiled experience? Absolutely. So Unveiled is both a prayer walk and an art exhibit where we've invited about a dozen local artists to contribute their visual artwork alongside written prayers that when participants come, they can read through the prayers that coincide with the visual art and have basically a guided prayer walk through the space. And then I had the opportunity to work with Leslie again within this project for the piece at the end of the prayer walk called Share Table, where once you have prayed through the prayers of the artists, you can come and have a seat at Share Table and write your own prayers 
that are also offered in the context of this exhibit. So there's only a few more days left to experience it. Um, so I would definitely invite you to attend. But if you're listening to this later, you can check out ShareTable as well as some more of Leslie's artwork on her website, leslieui.com. Thanks, Melissa. And it's been a joy just the last few weeks uh, hosting the exhibit to see how the, our space has actually transformed. It's been fun to, to have people coming back into the space in limited numbers uh, as we open up uh, this spring uh, and actually see the, the space transform with walls and other things all in the space. So if you have questions about Unveiled or comments for the podcast, make sure to email us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. So let's now turn it over to Melissa and Leslie for this Upwards conversation. So Leslie, thank you so much for joining me this morning. We get to have a really fun conversation about your journey as an artist, about art installation, and even the role of art in the church. Um, So we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I want to start by unpacking your journey of becoming an artist, which there's so much there. We're not going to be able to to go through all of the stories. Um, But I want to set up our listeners to really lean in and hear about some formative experiences that you went through in your personal life, in your education life, um, the role of your family. And there's some just really powerful threads that go through um, how you've become and emerged into who you are today as an artist. So to set us up, I would love to have you highlight um, what are three primary life experiences or even just areas of your life that were essential in forming you in how you see the world and create art? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. It's exciting. You know, I was thinking, how do I unpack, uh, I guess, 20 years of a, of a career in art? But really, the formative stuff is so important to know how how I got there and my story is unique to me, but it's, it's kind of interesting because I guess I'm going to kind of start towards the, the me figuring out, oh, I need to be an artist to, and then go kind of backwards to when I was a little yeah. bit like younger. I never thought about studying art. Like I liked art, you know, in, when I went to school, things were really compartmentalized. Like, oh, you study, you know, box A, box B, how do they connect? Nobody really talked about it. It was just like, you need to study these subjects. And I was always really good at math. And I also took marketing and always liked putting the displays together. And I thought that was fun, but I never like thought of it as something, you know, that I would pursue in terms of visuals. I enjoyed visuals. So you didn't, you didn't go to art school? No, right away. not at all. Okay. I, I actually never have gone to art school. Wow. Okay. Which is, might be freeing for some people to hear yeah. who wrestle with their identity as an artist or yeah. wonder, could I ever be an artist? Right. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, and I want to, I'll get to that in a minute because okay. that was a really fun, like a, just kind of unlocking something for me. But like, so my undergrad, I actually studied math because I was good at it. I went to Wayne State College in Nebraska and they had this thing called John Nyhart Scholarship. And we just studied all sorts of things in connection with each other, music, literature, philosophy, um, art history. And I just all of a sudden thought, oh, things are more connected than I realized. And I love it. And I realized that's kind of where I I land. And so I wanted to study architecture, but I I remember having a a strong talking with my my family or my dad specifically. And he's kind of like, you know, it's important to finish what you start. So I finished math and I ended up studying fractals as my, my honors program kind of asked us to study or explore something. So that's kind of fun because I enjoy things that are in between and fractals actually measure fractional dimensions, like 2.5, like 
oh, a piece of paper, it's eight and a half by 11. But, you know, what about the thickness of it? What if you crumple it? What? It, how does that change? And so I, f- I feel like that's kind of, and the idea of textures having different dimensions, I just really like that conceptually. And so after that, I went directly to a three and a half year master's program at Virginia Tech for architecture from good, wise, sound advice was finish what you start, be able to do a lot more. And so I finished my undergrad and I'm really grateful that I didn't just go and transfer. I just like the world opening up about connections. And when I saw sort of the program at Virginia Tech, it was neat, kind of Bauhaus based, which if anyone is familiar with that, it's a lot of hands-on kind of making. And I thought, oh, maybe I get to make things. I didn't, I didn't really, it's kind of new to me. Uh, tell us about that season. Like, who formed you in, in architecture school? What are some of those, like, first experience you had digging into to making? My, I think my first day, our teacher, Hans Rott, if any of my fellow grad students hear that name, they'll know what I'm talking about. He was amazing. But I remember him sitting us down as a class, maybe I think about 20 people. He said, you know, you're coming here for an education and not a training. Half of you might not ever go into architecture, but I want you to leave knowing um, how to think. And that freed me up to a point where I, I didn't even know what to do with myself. My, I felt like my spirit was unleashed to discover. And then they threw us into all these shops like wood shop, metal shop, you know, machining, uh, ceramics, photography. And I remember we had to make this one particular shape, a shape that we had to figure out that would fit through a triangle, a circle, and a square. And I love geometry. Like, as a math person, yeah. I, love, I love all the geometry. I love physical geometry. I love making lines and, and finding, you know, curves and, and all of that. I really like calculus. You know, I mean, it's fun. So what did you end up creating then? You did you were you involved in installation at that time? That's a good question, because I kind of, you know, I sort of kept kept going through the different kind of classes and courses we went to. But I found myself really drawn into making directly. It was kind of like, you know, starting to make models of things to make a thing kind of felt like I really like just going directly into making, but it felt almost like, well, that doesn't quite fit in the box. Mm. That does, that doesn't quite fit. And uh, then I was doing a lot of talking with you know, friends and they were like, oh, I, you know, that's interesting, Leslie, what you're thinking. I would do sketching little ideas. And uh, there was a, a guy who, an architect who came and someone said, they need a, a display for his kind of presentation or his reception. So I was in this little gallery with a skylight and I remember thinking about basically I sewed, I think it was 1,235 or something, little phlox flowers, those tiny, tiny ones, on threads and hung them directly down like rain. And they were anchored with washers. And it was so just, I mean, this is towards the end of my time there. I mean, maybe I had one and a half more years left, but a teacher came to me and said, you know, you're an artist. And I flinched. Huh. I kind of flinched inside because I thought, oh, now I'm doomed to be, you know, impractical and, and it's scary. But then I kind of, you know, I flinched and I was excited at the same time and frightened. And I don't think he meant you don't have to be an architect, but I thought in a way it just felt like he named something in me that I wouldn't name for myself that I would kind of run away from or, or try to say, oh, 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 it's kind of embarrassing because, you know, I should be a practical person. But, you know, when I came in there, they basically said, open up 
find out, discover. That was interesting to me. What a powerful way to start your art journey. And I bet others can resonate with that. Just the that identity forming process and the feeling known, but also feeling scared. Yes. Like, especially when you're called to a lot of out-of-the-box work. While you were in grad school, I think there was also a formative experience that was more on the, the family side of things. So was, that, was that in the same, the same time? Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I have four sisters, and uh, I, I'm the second oldest. And so there's a huge age gap between the youngest and the oldest, about 16 years. So when I was in grad school, um, living in Virginia, and my family's from Nebraska, I was up in D.C. visiting a friend, and I was in this really beautiful garden called Dumbarton Oaks. It's in Georgetown. And then went back and got a message that um, I needed to call home, that my dad had a heart attack. And I think there was a, a grace that the person called knew that he had died, but my aunt ended up telling me that, and I felt like a bomb went off. I don't think that grief and the loss of someone is like, it's a void, it's a destruction, it's a pulling down of a lot of things. I I was pretty much paralyzed. I started to just get kind of, like, I, I couldn't move forward. I didn't know what to do. I was incredibly distraught. I My youngest sister was 11, and I thought, you know, what are what are we going to do? My dad was um, an incredible person as my mom, but my dad kind of was that he was really a good he was a good father to each of us individually, and so it was yeah. just this huge loss and I remember he'd come up to architecture school with a year before and was like, "Oh, I think I kind of get you a little bit more and I think that was that grace so how did that um that journey of grief impact uh, your art journey, your journey as an artist, but also your faith. You're, you're a person of faith, um, and I imagine that that would have created a lot of wrestling or just, what, what did that look like? It's a grace that I was not actually angry at God. I wasn't angry. I just needed to be comforted. And I remember that verse, there's a verse called in Matthew 6.33, basically, seek first the kingdom of God and it's his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I was like, okay, I'm going to seek you, God, because I, I don't know what else to do. I don't know where to turn. And I did a lot of journaling and, you know, I ended up taking an extra year at, in my master's because I just couldn't accomplish anything. And then the fact is it wasn't about accomplishing. It was about being known and being seen and being loved. And in turn... I feel like that kind of shifted how I saw the world in the sense of how important is it to accomplish something or to, to see someone or be seen or known. That was a big deal for me. And I, I also kind of experienced a shift of time, like how God uses material, I think, as time as material, thinking this is impossible. How can I get certain tasks done to be done to graduate? And I didn't I ended up moving back to Nebraska after that. The tasks would turn into like instead of three days, three hours or something would speed up, or how did that get accomplished? Or someone came and said, what about this? And then everything shifted. And so I could actually, I was actually accomplishing more with less time in terms of the measurable time. But, but the time I was spending with, with God and, and with Jesus, just feeling like I could receive love was huge. And it just, it was like flip-flopped. Like the more I time spent time with God, the more things were accomplished and less time in the practical sense of the word. So it kind of affected my brain as to how God works with time and how time is not as, you know, chronological as metronomic, like the met metronome clicking along. Um, it's not always that way. I want the listeners to know this is fascinating because we're going to come back to the theme of time later. 
So it's just so beautiful that the, that God introduced that theme and kind of reordered how you were experiencing time because it's actually a huge theme that comes through in your artwork a lot later. Before we get there, this kind of journey of the role of fabric in your life that's also kind of threaded through a lot of family members. So I would love to hear a little bit about um, and those who know you work, your work now have seen the role of, of textile material and fabric in your work, yeah. uh, but it didn't just come from nowhere. No. So, so tell us how, how fabric has been a part of your story for quite a while. It's kind of funny thinking through it. I mean, I was, I was thinking, what are some formative things? And honestly, like I, when I was little, I really liked to, I mean, most kids, we, like you find things that you like to play with. And one of my grandmas worked at a men's fat oh actually not men's men's and women's fashion store and they did a lot of alterations and so when they would cut the hems off of pants that were too long she would bring me all the loops all the loops of fabric and I remember setting up like this weird little fabric shop in my bedroom you know like oh let me sell to my dolls which which piece of fabric they want I thought it was so pretty and all you know you think of clothing from all over you know that texture was really really fun and then my my grandma in in Hawaii, my dad's mom, my first grandma was my mom's mom, second grandma, my dad's mom, she was an expert seamstress. There was a, a moment I, I found out recently that she was being recruited to go to New York to help make a, like the samples for some a famous fashion designer, but chose wow. to kind of stay back with her family and and sort of get into you know domestic life you know in Hawaii so my my grandma sewed all her kids clothes she was a one of those expert homemakers she knit everything and we would get some dresses in the mail or they would visit and i just played with those i i loved thinking about you know how she designed or made them i still my aunt um from Hawaii auntie sarah she sent me all of these patterns so i have all the patterns from you know, boys and girls and men's and women's and wow. sizes. And I even have these measuring uh, pattern designed rulers now. Like, it's funny because it has like, like the English numbers and English. And then the other side of notes is all Japanese, which is kind of fun. That's not my second language, but that's my part of my heritage. And so I really like that. I like to look at the textures and look at the numbers. It's exciting to me to use the tools that she used. That's so cool. I even have her shears with a little engraved last name on it which is really wonderful. And then my dad, and he was a big maker. You know, he liked to make our bunk beds. He made, uh, he terraced our garden. He just was one of those people who was broad ranging in how he could work on cars. But he also sewed. He was a uh, shorter stature as am I and had to hem all his pants. So it's like, so I would see him hem his pants and fix his uniforms and, and do things, just the basics. But he would get out the sewing machine and I just thought, oh, that's something I need to learn. And so my mom set us up with 4-H because she's like, I don't know how to sew, but you guys need to. I think you'll like it. So I, I learned to sew when I was in about third grade and didn't know that it would affect my life so far now. Yeah. I mean, so now it's like a big part of how I make art. But when I was little, it just felt like this is fun. Absolutely. That's so cool. And I love, I'm just prompted to think of what are the stories in my own life where there's been a theme or even material or a hobby that's threaded through family and heritage and history. And what are, what are we inheriting and then stewarding and, and taking forward? So thank you for sharing that with us. That was just beautiful to learn a little bit about your story. So from here, we're kind of going to fast forward in a way, but open up the broad topic of art installation. So 
after architecture school, you lean into this role of being an artist, and we will probably skip over some of the stories that got you there. But art installation might not be familiar for um, some people who are listening. And so um, it, in my mind, it often means art that's not just something you look at, but something that you're involved with and you experience. And I'm, I've been fascinated with it. We've gotten the opportunity to work together a couple times, and I've seen your work. And so I want to open up a conversation around describing the genre of art installation and why installation is your art form of choice. That is such a good question. When I was thinking through, um, thing, so for me, art installation is not something you just look at. I think sculpture could be installation too, in a mm-hmm. sense. The sculpture kind of, you think it's immobile. Some of my work is goes in between sculpture and installation. Yeah. But installation is something that often means like has a sense of temporality. Like it's not going to be there that long. Uh, I imagine, um, I think you can think of art that you've seen outdoors. Maybe people have seen people lay little rocks in a circle or something. That's like an an art installation outside. I often work interiorly. I like thinking about the framework of a building kind of almost being like the loom or the structure to hold something inside. So I I often see installation as not carving out, but um, actually building within certain structures. So often there's a, a site that's already specific and we work towards that site. I work towards that site. Um, I think that has a little bit to do with my architectural leanings. I really enjoy thinking about the site, thinking about what goes there, how do things connect, how do things stay, you know, and and knowing that a lot of my art exists for a small amount of time and won't exist again, especially in that place or time and space. I mean, every, you know, time moves slowly for some art and moves very quickly for other art. And that's something that I, I, I really think is something that has appealed to me but it also gives me like, oh, it's oh, it's going to be gone. You wish when you're little, summer lasts forever. But when you're older, summer feels like it lasts for five minutes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of thing. Sometimes my art feels like it lasts for five minutes. Totally. But I hope that the memory lasts for five years. You know what I mean? Yeah. feels longer. Well, and you, this is kind of bringing back that theme of time that we just talked about. And you play with the role of time in your pieces. And I wonder if there's a particular piece that you could describe that articulates how you almost structure time and space. And I don't know if manipulate is the right word, but you you craft it in such a way that, like you said, speeds it up or slows it down. Dive into that a little bit more. Is there is there a piece that kind of gives us a visual of what that's like? Yeah, I. it's kind of fun to, to go and look in what piece to to talk about. I'm thinking now about a very, very, very time-focused piece called Timekeeper, Anachronism, and Chrysalis. This is a piece that was at um, Briarcliff College in Iowa, Briarcliff, and it was a really uh, a neat opportunity. And the time, it was, I think, 2009 through 2010, kind of, it bridged a new year, which is also interesting. I had created these cocoons kind of out of kind of a, a, a translucent scrim kind of like theater scrim I really enjoy that translucency of fabrics and layers um, in my pieces this sense of you can see through things and you can uh, create dimension through layers yeah. and uh, so I sewed these it's kind of funny because I remember I didn't have a ton of actually time to make this piece so I think I thought well how do I do that. So I think 
those limits, site, time, deadlines, you know, we all work with those are really, really helpful. So I'm like, I had a vision in my mind, but I also thought, well, how do I make this um, doable? Had all this scrim and all like different, I don't know if I cut it into strips, but I use a lot of strips in my fabric. So I probably did. And then I sewed it. And so they were, each of these sort of cocoon-like structures were about maybe three to six feet long. And then I put this small kind of insertion, like kind of a dangling sort of another piece of fabric inside. And then inside of each of those, I kind of sourced all these analog clocks, like the alarm clocks. And I wanted clocks that you could wind and that ticked, didn't have batteries. So that was a fun process. I really, I really have a tendency to, to enjoy going to antique stores and thrift stores and, and finding things that have mechanical implications. I love typewriters. I like the things that make noise when you hit them. Things, maybe it's the kid in me, but I like to see an action and reaction. What comment was Timekeeper as a piece? What was it saying about the role of time? Well, part of it was the title, ana- um, Anachronism and, and Chrysalis, this idea that um, kind of uh, like time is sort of anachronistic. It's kind of like it, it kind of becomes outdated in a sense. It, it winds down. It has an end and a beginning. There's a sense of, you know, you have to keep minding the time, you know. And then uh, the kind of the chrysalis, the idea of the time being transformative is the idea of there's a time about change. And that's not necessarily measured in hours and minutes and seconds. That's something that happens that we can't measure very easily. You think about a butterfly. How do you measure that? That's weird. It's like like we look at it, but it's not how you measure it by watching, like being a watcher, being an observer is different than click, click, click. And in this room, I played the role of timekeeper. So I had this uh, kind of red wool felt kind of out, outfit, like with a hood. And I just, I wanted to show the sense that the time is not our own and that there's someone keeping time. There's someone watching. And there's also a metronome in the in the room kind of clicking. But the alarm clocks were set and they would all go off and and ring bells and make sounds, and it felt like a, t- a nursery for time. Wow, a time nursery. It was it was wild because, and then I'd go and you know, wind them up. Then they'd ring later, and then and then people would actually could wander within and out of these sort of hanging cocoons and look at the time and listen and hear the ticking. What also, I, I like the analogies. Um, I like all these connections. Like I yeah. said, I mean, that's something really fun for me. You have a huge value for words and etymology, and that plays a huge role in how you understand art installation and even the word install. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about etymology and the role that that plays and how you understand and see the role of installation in art. Yeah, well, you know, I love digging into words. And, you know, I, I love the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, and that's something I'll, I want to touch on later because it's really fun. But um, installation is something that when I made that piece back at the for the architecture, visiting the architecture person with the, the hanging, the threaded flowers, that kind of kind of emphasizes to me something about this idea of install. So the idea about installation being the word root is stall, which means like a room. And then I also think about like the, the stall for a horse and the sense of something that wants to move 
you keep still for a moment. Like this idea of like a horse wants to get out of the room, right? When it's excited, it wants to yeah. go. Those flowers, they want to fall, right? Yeah. But, they're, but they're, they're, they're there for a minute. They're held kind of in suspension. So installation in how I interpret it is the sense of being suspended for a moment when something wants to move. Like keeping a concept, um, sort of enlarging the time of a concept so people can en- enjoy it and kind of know it and explore it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to. And you you took that that horse, the, the stall, the horse metaphor right directly into a title of one of the pieces you created. I think it's called Holding My Horses. Yeah. Tell us about that piece. When there's there's so much going on there. Oh, my goodness. That's so fun. So I think, you know, each each site or location is special. And this was um the kind of the Florence Mill art loft. And so it was an, a historic mill that was on the Mormon Trail. Uh, they've done a lot of work. Um, the woman, Linda Meggs, she is just... A, just a restore a person who loves art and loves the restoration of the process and invited me to do a piece and I thought oh what am I going to do and I went up there and took my sketchbook and and I was I actually sat and was asking God what what should I do and I was very deep in the book of Revelation so if anyone's deep in that book you know there's so many images there's so many visuals and I was thinking a lot about the horses there's like this this whole scene of like the horses of the armies of God and they're going forward and and to do whatever, you know, is next, um, it's very dramatic. But I thought, well, what, what is happening when, when the horses aren't going forward yet? Like, wh- how does God hold his horses? Does God keep something back that wants to move forward because of grace, because of love? Like, the horses, it's a scary time in, in the Bible. When If you look at Revelation, it's kind of like, oh, I, people look forward to it and people are scared of it. And I, I'm thinking, God, just hold back for now. Because so many, I want people to know how much you love them. And so, and I think, what does God's horse stall look like? <laughs> yeah. And also the, the idea that the building was on a migration trail was really interesting. The idea that people move forward as they're waiting for something too. You know, this idea of migration and forward motion, but you're not there yet, right? You don't get there. So what do you do while you're waiting to get there as you're moving? So this idea of moving in stillness is always something that captures my attention. And I also, so during that time, I had a typewriter and I asked people um, to type one or two words of what they, were they waiting for or a story that could activate them. What did they hold in reserve for another time? And um, people could type. And one, one person typed the word um, first steps and it talked about how their child had waited till their the father had come home from war to take the first steps. Wow. And she kept thinking, is this child ever going to walk? And when the father came home, it was first steps. It was so beautiful. And so then I would knit those words letter by letter. I had a code like pearl one, pearl two, and then would be for A. So A would be two pearls. And then the rest would be like, a, I think it was 50. So I did like each stitch was worth a letter, like two stitches worth worth letters. So A was two, B was four. And so then it was this kind of code. So I wanted the idea of knitting and waiting or something kind of kind of coming together in my mind as to, to demonstrate waiting and to demonstrate motion and how those two things kind of intersect was really fun for me. Probably people are catching on that your work is really conceptual. Is there anything else you want to say just about key concepts or just how other concepts that come together or how you see those the conceptual world coming into the physical world in, in installation? I think sometimes, you know, concepts are very fluid. Like, like they can take form, like someone could explore one concept and I could, could explore the same concept and they look completely differently. In my own art, sometimes the form is the same, but the concepts are slightly different. Um, I really wanted an industrial sewing machine and I thought, I'm going to 
if I get this industrial sewing machine, I'm going to make a 20-foot tulip or a giant giraffe or both. And it was for another project. I was upholstering a giant O for Omaha. And, and then I prayed about that. And it's funny, within a week, I, I got a grant and a gift from someone. And I immediately bought that sewing machine. Wow. And so the first uh, time I made this 20-foot tulip, it was called Crash. And it had a, a steel kind of armature, but it was coated with a clear vinyl stuffed with black ostrich feathers, making a black tulip. And then the Financial Times, which is a peach newspaper that has the world stock market quotes and that was all stock markets and it was a kind of a piece right before the we had the housing economic bubble burst and I was talking about kind of the tulipomania that had happened that sort of mimicked that crash hadn't happened yet in our housing bubble but I think artists we tend to have our head to the ground and can feel things happening before they do and that's kind of maybe the prophetic role of arts um, and, and I and I don't reserve that for people who are Christians. I I believe arts yeah. have a prophetic voice yeah. in the culture. And then I loved making tulips so much, I wanted to make them again. <laughs> and so yeah, so I I kept thinking, oh, I would love to do that. And then it opened up this past, I would say, 2019. I was working with a curator, and um, she saw some of my work, and I was like, I think I could. I want to make these tulips again. So I ended up making 20 foot tulips again, but they were this time they were white vinyl and very heavy not as light as the as the ones uh the one with the two uh ostrich feathers i know i made five i made five i i i like the number five i can't help myself i think it's because of my five sisters and i feel like it's a graceful number i just i you know so i tend towards the number five i you know i've created some other pieces that are five and um yeah, so those have those are white on the outside and colored on the inside, and and that was based on a story of of seeing people in, in, that I know in my life, like my mom and other people, sort of returning to a sense of childhood wonder in their later years. The idea of what like it was white called Winter Spring and Altera Garden, which is like elder rather than kinder. So these are similar forms expressing slightly different, well, very different concepts. So I think. Forms can take on different concepts, and concepts can take on different forms. And so it's sort of, I like the back-and-forth nature of, of that kind of work. That's amazing. And that how those came about in completely different time times within yeah. your journey as an artist, your work as an artist. 14 years in wow. between. Yeah. That's amazing. Yep. So you work with a lot of different concepts and a lot of different materials, which we were hearing a lot of in, in your stories and describing your pieces. But I'd love to dig into... Just unpacking what is one core material and then one core concept that we could kind of crawl inside and and understand um, and really a material and a concept that you gravitate towards in your work. So that keeps kind of recurring. And and why is it there? Um, what are your own self-reflections about that? Oh, it's it's kind of funny because, you know, touching on fabric earlier, it has just pervaded my 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 making but not necessarily the fabric of just like you know the not necessarily the the woven stuff that we think exactly as fabric woven is incredibly important to me in grad school I took this wonderful course called craft and scholarship with um, Steve Thompson he was just a wonderful teacher and he encouraged us to look at craft as a scholarship and scholarship as a craft kind of switching those metaphors around or those types of things around like like for me, I decided to dig into the word fabric because I, I just was like, I don't, I don't, I'm just interested in it. I like the idea of weaving, you know, or this idea of pattern making. 
I, that's where I did discover my love for the Oxford English Dictionary. Huh, okay. Yeah, I looked up fabric, and I think there's like three, is it two or three pages for the word? Wow. And all of a sudden, I got into deep of fabric, fabricating structures, the idea of fabricating, and I started to think about buildings as fabrications, and then the sense of going back to um, the loom and the idea of like making that physical fabric, which was really exciting to me. And um, the loom is related to, and I'm not sure if it flip-flops around, so someone go look it up, please. It'll sure. be fun. Um, <laughs> like the idea of uh, engine um, was how the original um, kind of looms and things were developed in, in computers, right? So, and then that word links to engender, which links to the idea of, of mother, but like, and I think about the motherboard in the computer, like in the computer, the idea of engendering, giving birth to creation. And so this idea of the feminine and the fabric and the engine and the loom is something that just completely captures my attention about fabric. I mean, so I never think of fabric as just a one layered woven thing. I think yeah. of it in so many different ways, so, but, but I do like fabric. I love using it, but I, I, I think of it in this, I enjoy this idea of the dimensionality and the idea that it can create dimension. It, and then it goes back to the fractals thing where it's the in-between. Is it flat? Is it folded? Is it created? Is it designed? How does, how does that work? And it, it just, I, I love it. I enjoy thoroughly um, thinking about materials like that. And it's kind of fun. I, I was thinking, can I just throw out two fun examples yeah, about please, fabric? Yeah, take us there. Sometimes art can form when you have a thought of what you want to make. And sometimes it's just like, I don't really know what to make, so I'm just going to try something. you know. And so I, I often would get stuck. Like sometimes I just get stuck and I think, oh, what can I make in five, five minutes? What can I make in five minutes? And I remember in, and then in grad school, I was really stuck and I thought, and I had um, aluminum screen. Someone gave me aluminum screen. And so I ended up starting to make this little layered piece of, um, aluminum screen that turned into a little box and it turned into a 20 hour project. Whoa. So after that experience with aluminum screen, I really love it. So I kind of kept it in my mind and I think it might've been 2013 or 14. I started, uh, I was a little stuck again. So I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to go back to that screen. I think it's really fun. And I, I, I like, I'm always like, do it again, do it again. It's so fun. And I think that's part of the joy of um, creating is, you know, you want to do it again. So I, I found that screen and I started, I cut them into rectangles and started making a three-dimensional forms that look kind of like feathers or something. And then I ended up making this giant piece. To me, it was giant. I mean, I'm about five foot one. So it was about five, almost maybe five foot six, but it was, looked like a, like a plant or something. And then I thought about, it reminded me of a hedgehog. And so it's named Pinsvin because it, that's a Finnish word for hedgehog. And I really, I had one of my favorite faculty in architecture school was Finnish, Pia Sarpaneva. She was always, that was one of her exercises was making something out of one material. So it's kind of a nod to her. And the idea of the folded screen becoming dimensional was really, really fun. And I was reading a book called The Elegance of the Hedgehog. <laughs> So everything converged. Yes, there. it all does. It all does. It all does. And then, and then, it, then let me, let me go to the wayback machine. Um, when I st first kind of launched into my career, I made it was kind of a big, a, the, my biggest pieces that are permanent in Omaha, um, called Sounding Stones. 
Well, I, I was in school and someone had put an article about casting uh, concrete into fabric on my desk in like 1996. Then I was teaching at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and someone said, oh, this person's coming and giving a lecture. Sounds like you might be interested, Leslie. Same guy, same article. And so I went, and I was like, oh, I, I, I'd like to try that. He was challenging people to cast fabric into, like, spandex or something. And so then I made a little model of, for another project, of like a little kind of bird feeder or something I wanted to make, like, with a cone of water in there. And I had, like, some kids coming, and I was like, oh, we'll work on this idea of fabric. And, and so I ended up getting a, a kind of a vision for that, for a project for the, a city, the city. And I remember some, okay, I have to say this. Someone joked and said, I showed them the form. It was so beautiful. And this older guy was a, I think he was a guy who was a forge. He did, like, he was a blacksmith. And I was working with a lot of artists at a big, a big, um, a lot of studios at that point. And, uh. He's like, oh, that would be really great big. And I remember laughing. Like, I was like, that's ridiculous. That's never going to happen. And I think it's kind of funny. Like, be careful what you laugh at because then, you know, so any, anyway, I ended up making those really large. And instead of spandex, I used um, woven geotextiles. And what I love, and I cut those on the bias. So instead of like the, the you know, up and down grid, you, the bias cut is the, as women know, it feels really good on curves. It like really drapes well. So this is a particular fabric. Well, the geotextiles, like which you keep um, your garden from, like the the weeds down. It's black, oh, okay. and it's like, or this was high, like super intense uh, geotextiles. But um, so I sewed that. I had to borrow at that point. I had to rent um, an awning and go to an awning factory and uh, use their machines to sew. But the the each of the sculptures are like from fourteen to sixteen tons. So Whoa. we cast the, them into concrete. And so the idea of the fabric, you know, forming was beautiful. And then the fabric is stripped away and the form was left. And then to me, that goes back into this idea of en- engendering and um, forming and this idea of the woven and the, and the framework that causes something to be able to be formed. And it's, it's just really interesting. So fabric is not just fabric. That's one. Right. <laughs> that's a simple well, way. That's, for a, me. that's a really good way to do it. Yeah, that's a good way. Wow, there's so much there. So, so there's also a core concept that I think you even recently told me uh, you discovered that has actually been in your work for quite a while, but you didn't know it was there, and it wasn't it wasn't consciously emerging and making itself known, yeah. but it was. Tell us about uh, what this concept is and how it's really permeated um, a lot of your work. Well, I, you know, it, it was, I was having to write an artist statement and trying to think of what are the general thoughts of my work? Um, what is, what is a concept that's holding it all together? Then all of a sudden it, it dawned on me, it's like the garden. And I have a lot of even shows that have the word garden in them and garden this and garden that. And I thought, well, I think that that's something that I really care about. And it's, it's beautiful to me because, you know, I, like my dad worked in the garden and um, I was in that formal garden when he died. And I think that really impressed me, this idea of seasons and time again, this idea that, you know, everything has a season, you know, a purpose under heaven, like this idea that I, there, there is, is never just one season in one's life. And, and that's emphasized in the garden, like making giant tulips or, um, I did a, a project called interstitial garden. It was the idea of not fitting into any particular place, but how do you make a garden in a place in a state of a heart or mind that you don't fit? Mm-hmm. And instead of 
you know, turning away, like really, really like metaphorically and physically dig in. And I think that this um, sense of garden has even, I feel like I've even seen myself in a different season no, I, I, but you can only look backwards, right? You can't. You can look forward and think of what's next, but when you look back, you really see growth. Yeah. Like my color palette's changed a lot, um, and I think that it's sort of this sense of memory that I really treasure. There's a quote, and I brought it because it's been a fun quote that I've had in my heart about yeah. gardens. And I don't. Could I read it for yes. you? It's from an article called "Ghost of the Guard," a ghost of a garden by Heather McKinnon, and it was uh, 1997 in an article for a journal called Hortus. And it says, "Many gardeners work on two gardens: the one they have now, and their next one, the one they hope to have, the dream garden. Some of us also work on a third, a beloved garden lost. And since memory is highly selective, this garden gradually sheds its faults." becomes lovelier than was the reality. Memory keeps alive the desire. And in my case, both distance and difference add to the longing. You know, and I, I think about, uh, you know, the idea of Genesis and the idea of the garden and how, how often we're longing for that utopia or that place of beginnings and perfection. And, and the imperfections go away. Like when someone dies, like when someone dies that I love, I don't always remember the cracks and crevices. I kind of it sort of starts to shed all the oldness and it's shiny and beautiful. And that's sort of part of the idea of memory for me and time. I'm really grateful that I kind of realized that that's been a concept that has continued seriously for 20 years and finally realized it like this year. That's amazing. So I feel like a place that we're building toward in this conversation, and I kind of want to culminate with this theme is really the role that art plays um, and the way we understand it, or maybe maybe many of us don't understand it. Um, and I think this happens in in culture more broadly, in the church, in communities of faith. We've Both of us have had that opportunity to work together here at Upper House um, on a couple occasions now on a couple different pieces. One was a, a performance installation piece called Hold Fast, and the second was an interactive installation called Share Table. And in my mind, when, when I was inviting you to do this work, um, it's been about helping non-artists as well as the church engage with art and find this on-ramp to understanding what is art doing and how do I approach it? I would love to just let you share with us from your perspective as an artist, what is the role of art in culture and what do you wish people or maybe even Christians in particular um, understood about art and the role that, that artists play? Wow, that's a that's a great question. I I think so. I, I I'll address it first from my perspective of how I see my role, yeah. and then maybe how you know maybe culturally or through the church. Right. But I I see my role as a person, like I said, kind of in between dimensions. You know, like that sounds woo, but I mean the idea that I think art is an in between space. It's in between. I think heaven and earth is in between. Um, humans and God, there's a way to create a space for people to dwell in, you know, in that spiritual reality that art can make. And that's, for me, that's something that I want to provide a space for people to encounter um, God, to encounter beauty, to encounter joy. And those are fruits of God, right? Those are, those are things that I want someone to be in my work and feel like in some way they're known, and that's not because of me. So I view my role as an intercessor, like that my art, and if someone's not familiar with the word intercessor, it's like 
someone who is praying for someone else. Yeah, the in-between. The in-between. Like, I'm not necessarily praying for myself. Maybe I am, but it's that it's the idea that I am caring about someone else and that I also love God and I want to have them understand how much they're loved, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of a... It, it's also, I think that, you know, when we're, we spend time in prayer or making, there's, there's like these beautiful thoughts that you never would have if you were just only listening to podcasts all day, which I do sometimes, or if you're just um, distracting yourself, a time of distraction-free making, which opens us up, I think, to the voice of God. And then made in that mode, I believe that opens up the opportunity for others to hear or sense the voice or presence of God in the work that I create. That's, that's what I want. And also, you know, I think first of all, there's also a range of you know, emotions and things happening in people. There's deep grief, there's great joy. And for my work, that's like, I'm excited when people sense the care in both of those spaces. Like you can have fun. You can be sad. Like, and, and you're seen in that spot. So I think art is that to me. So in that role, that's I think that's a huge role that, that artists can play is that in between someone, like I said, the ear to the ground, like maybe think of what something's happening yeah. beforehand or translating something that's happening. You know, other artists paint pictures of things, and that's amazing. Like they're bringing like an illuminating a window into something else. I think about great icons are not even art. They're windows through so I think of, you know, iconography is something that I think is amazing to look into. I think of my art in some ways has a sense of looking through a window. Like Madeline Lengel has a lot of discussions about the, the idea of icons and iconography and the window. So there's a, a sense of looking through as well as being in. So take us to the layer of helping us see the value of art when maybe that feels abstract or... Uh, and the role that art then plays, which you're kind of getting at in in the prophetic and and the perceiving what is coming or what is before we can sense it, maybe with our our physical eye. But how is art communicating and really guiding us in culture? Oh, that's whew, that's a good one. Okay, I would say, and I think it's kind of a it's a it's a communication process because I think when we're looking around the culture what are the artists saying? You know, because they're not just saying it for themselves. They're, they're saying it for, for others. They're, maybe they're, they're in connection with God. They're in connection with, you know, they're, they're speaking something. And, and visually, I think visuals and, the, and words are kind of intermixed. Like I think about like my love for words. I think, you know, Jesus is, is, says, you know, I'm the word of, you know, the word made flesh dwelt among us. So I feel like there's a sense of the flesh dwelling among us with acts of art. It's kind of beyond words. Like Jesus was beyond words, but he was the word. So art, I think, is beyond words, but it is word. It is creative. Yeah. I think words form and words can destroy. So I think it's really important to look, what are the artists doing? What is being destroyed? What is being created? Like, let's, let's pay attention to that. And I think, you know, as uh, someone who, you know, is a Christ follower, I think it's important for us to not say, oh, I only look at Christian art or I only do this. It's like, no, 
this is how you pray. This is how you know how to pray. This is how you look. This is what you see. This is, you know, if you want to keep your, your head as the, to, the, to the culture, like look what's going on in, in the creative world because often there's an effect that kind of water falls down. If you're looking at the art, you're going to see, okay, what's happening next or what's, what's going forward. And I think supporting the arts in the church is saying, you know what, we, we're caring about what's happening in the culture. And we want to support people in the culture that are, are forming and creating things that are about beauty and the love of God and taking down the things that just need to kind of, I guess, like the road, the things like the memory kind of starts to fade away. Like it's okay for some things to fade away. Do you have a parting word for us today, a hope, maybe even a, a commission for how we continue to see art in the world or engage with art? I would ask people to be present with those in front of them, right? I think art is about being present. I think engaging with art is also being present with someone, the artist or or God. There's a way of being present through engaging in art. It's about the person in front of you, but sometimes it's the person beyond you. How to engage and be present. I think art calls us to be present and to get outside of ourselves. Yeah. I don't think it's about, like, let me think about me. It's like, let me know that I am loved and seen. But it's not like a selfish thing. It's like, art, I think, is important about being known and, and, and being loved and being heard. You know, I've felt that deep comfort. I've felt seen, heard, and loved by God through art making and through um, engaging in the work, and that's something that I want to bring to others. And I, and I, and it just—it's not just me. I mean, look. I would say I would ask people to go be present, and look at the hard stuff, look at the good stuff. That's a charge I have for myself and for others. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Leslie. It was such a joy and an honor to hear your story, to learn from your journey, to kind of crawl inside how you think and see the world. There's so much to mine from this conversation, and what a beautiful invitation that we have to be present with one another, present to the art around us, and really lean into God's invitation for us to be known and seen and loved. The Upwards Podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.